The Road to Moscow by Robert Swipe Saturday, October the 6th, 2007 1979 Saturday, 12th of May, 1979 FA Cup Final Arsenal 3, Manchester United 2 I don't remember where I was when this game was played but I certainly didn't watch it at the time A shame, as it was one of the better finals and Arsenal won, of course, so that makes it even worse. But don't worry, I'll go on to miss even more important games and goals before we get to Moscow in May. I'd given up on football by then, you see, so for the next few years I only have discographies and charts to navigate my way through the years. 1979 starts well. Hit Me With Your Rhythm Stick hits the number one spot on January the 27th. Ian Jury and the band, who'd appeared wearing municipal donkey jackets when they performed on Top of the Pops the week before, celebrate their chart-topping feet by donning tuxedos. It's knocked off the top spot by the sublime heart of glass. The song seemed to be everywhere for the rest of the year, but it only stayed at number one for four weeks. I picked up the 12-inch single version recently. It still sounds astonishing. Sunday Girl, a mauve vinyl copy of which I used to be the proud owner, follows its fellow parallel lines cut to the top on May the 26th. Two weeks earlier and we could have had a decent number one in place for the Arsenal players to lift the FA Cup to. As it is, they have to be content with Bright Eyes by Art Garfunkel. You can't win them all. It's a good year for chart music. Gary Newman has number ones with Our Friends Electric and Cars. The Boomtown Rats hit the top with the epic I Don't Like Mondays, a song I couldn't stand at the time, but which sounded majestic when I heard it recently on Smooth FM. Even Cliff weighs in with a classy, and as some of us were brave enough to admit even at the time, Irresistible We Don't Talk Anymore, which is number one for four weeks. From August 25th. Then there's a date that I can order my life around. Message in a Bottle goes to number one on September the 29th. The police will have another number one in December with Walking on the Moon, but they've still to have their first chart topper when Toby and I go to see them at Hammersmith Odeon on Sunday the 23rd of September. I mention it because it was my very first gig. The police was supported by a punk band called The Straps, whose lead singer was with the inevitable logic of the time, called Jock. Or at least that's what I thought but it seems that I'm confusing this visit to Hammy Odeon with one I made in March the following year to see Stiff Little Fingers. So the support for the police must have been a band called Fashion. Sadly, I can't find any evidence to corroborate this, so you'll just have to take my word. The unverifiable support act out of the way, the police take the stage. It's a big night for them, on the cusp of huge success as they are, and as they only have two fairly skimpy LPs from which to select their set. Consequently, there, there are quite a few extended jams, and guitarist Andy Summers is wheeled out with an inflatable doll to do a quasi-music hall routine on a song called Sally. We're right at the back of the stalls, but we still pick up the buzz that's running through the hall. The police won't play many gigs this small again, so we catch them at, them at a good time. The bus ride home seems memorable too, as if it marks some rite of passage. Coming home late on a Sunday night like grown-up people do. It's a weird... To quote an album title of theirs, Synchronicity, then, to open our window recently and hear the distant strains of Message in a Bottle wafting towards us from their reunion concert at Twickenham Rugby Ground, the band sounding as far away as that concert now is in time. Somewhere in that other distant time, Michelle Bayer has a party, so that brings along another first. 
Her dad is a pretty cool fellow. Not only is she allowed to have her friends over to wreck the house, but he has a vintage jukebox too. It's another England v Poland type evening. The promise of glory, in this case getting drunk and getting to know a pretty girl, is unfulfilled. England, with its limitless pro propensity for shyness and poor tolerance of beer, always lets you down. And yet it could all have been very different. Somewhere in 1979, in a woodwork class, I'm making Yeski Martin, Shelley MacLaine in the apartment, laugh. She's our age, but has always seemed at least two years older than the rest of us. She's mature in every respect. Casper once groans, Let me drown in your breasts, as she walks past him. Intelligent, pretty and worldly wise. She has a shuffling, listless walk that oozes sulky boredom. It's as if she just can't wait for this dull expanse of school time to be over so she can get on with doing something worthwhile. Like being an actress, perhaps. Yeski Martin wants to be an actress. Every heterosexual male in our year fancies her, so she probably stands a good chance. And right now, I'm being funny and making her laugh, and no one cares the slightest bit about woodwork. Yeski is laughing because of something I've said, and with the casual spontaneity of those who are unrepressed, she links her arm with mine. Involuntarily, I move my arm away, and Yeski Martin isn't laughing anymore. The moment's come and gone. Past the door I didn't open, the arm I didn't link. It could all have been so different. November comes, and with it the first two contemporary LPs I remember buying, Setting Suns by The Jam and The Special's first album. I still have the jam, but the first two-tone LP is long gone. I'd pinched the first single from Woolworths too, my copy of Gangsters allowed to be spirited from me as thoughtlessly as I'd whisked it unseen from the singles rack. I still have Eaton Rifles, though, the razzle in my own thieving pocket, the second prize. I spend a lot of time at Casper's house in Hampton Hill. We write songs there, him playing stand-up piano, me on acoustic guitar. They tend to go like this. When I saw you outside Woolworths And the moonshine struck your hair My heart began to palpitate So I thought you were a chair Threw me out the window You poo-pooed on the lawn You covered me in excrement Boiled beef, stew and carrots Moonlight is you, my sweetheart Moonlight is you, my dear The moonlight on your hair is such As I said, it was a great year for music. Much of it is plugged on the Kenny Everett video show. David Bowie, who is becoming the latest obsession, appears on it performing Boys Keep Swinging. In the video, he's helped to perform the song by three female backing singers. By the end of the performance, they're all revealed to have been Bowie himself. Apparently, the single had been selling really well until the video was screened. But the song's playful gender uncertainties were made more overt and sinister when visualised and consequently hit an awkward nerve with the public, thus stalling the single's progress. 
Not even Bowie's appearance in a brilliant skit with Everett, who's dressed half as city businessman and half as stockinged and suspended pin-up, seems to be able to undo the damage. I fought two world wars for young boys like you! Kenny rants as he chases the thin white duke around the studio in his high heels, wielding an umbrella. They never gave me one! Bowie appeared on the radio on 20th of May, playing two hours worth of his favourite songs. Lennon, Lou Reed, Link Ray, Elgar, Philip Glass, Danny Kay. Again, the memory is at fault. I thought it was on Capital Radio, so I spent hours searching and come up with nothing until I found out that it was broadcast by the BBC. It was the first programme in a series called Star Special and offered an in a fascinating insight into the man and the eclectic nature of his taste. I could only find a transcript, not a music file, when I looked online. Reading through, it's reassuring to note that Bowie looks as scrambled in print when he DJs as I sound on my podcasts. I may not have been able to track down a music file of the show, but I did come across some other files. Fascinating clips of Bowie being interviewed by 12 of his fans on Capital Radio in February of the same year. The year ends on a high. Indeed, the decade ends on a high. Bowie... The man who's cast the longest shadow over the 1970s is on hand to see those ten years off. In the minutes leading up to the new decade, Kenny Everett plays the video reworking of Bowie's earlier hit, Space Oddity. It's captivating stuff. Bowie sings over a stripped-down reworking of the song from a padded cell. It's his own John Lennon Plasticono band, ushering in the new realist Bowie, as if he's singing The Dream Is Over to the decade that's just gone. And maybe it was, but for me, copying photos of Bowie into a sketchbook, it should all have been about to begin. Monday, October the 8th, 2007. High noon. Sunday, 7th of October, 2007. Arsenal 3, Sunderland 2. England always lets you down. Not in the Rugby World Cup it doesn't. Neither does France. On Saturday evening, Sebastien Chabal stares down the all-black hacker with imperious contempt to inspire a famous French victory, after England's forwards had earlier done pretty much the same to the Australian pack. The respective Anglo-French heroics set up a mouth-watering and most unlikely semi-final in Paris next weekend. There's something about the unfancied or outnumbered hero over overcoming insurmountable odds, isn't there? Or have I just been carried away by the Wild West imagery of Eddie Butler's analysis of England's Rugby World Cup? English rugby went down like a wounded bison on a stinking night in Paris. It flicked its tail against Samoa and Tonga to show it wasn't quite done yet. But how did it rise from the prairie and tear across the plains like that? All in all, this has already been one of the most exhilarating sporting weekends that I can remember experiencing. So the pride of the English bison restored. It's almost a relief after all the excitement to leave the brave frontier of the 15-man game and go back to the Emirates for today's anticipated stroll in the park against another bunch of Premier League new boys. But on this form-book shredding weekend, our midday kick-off against newly promoted Sunderland ends up feeling far too much for comfort like high noon. Ahead of the game, though, even I don't share the pessimism of Andy Dawson from net, Writing in the Observer's Fan's Eye View section, he says, I reckon they'll probably win about 2-0. 
I'm far too wary of Sunderland after their opening day rocking of bullish and expectant spurs to buy into that, especially with their penchant for the late equalising or match-pinching goal. But after 14 minutes, Andy Dawson is looking, if anything, somewhat of an optimist. Arsenal have already had the ball in the Sunderland net three times before the quarter of an hour mark. I've barely taken my seat, having been delayed queuing to have my membership card reactivated by the blackberry-tapping bookmaker's pen of a diligent orange-coated steward when Diaby strokes the ball home from outside the box. The goal doesn't stand, though. The referee is already blown for the clattering foul from behind that has flattened Fabregas before he can preempt Abu's effort and score himself. It's a good job, too, otherwise we'd all have been deprived of the stunning Robin Van Persie free-kick that does open the scoring. There's a clean, bold, cricket-stump thwack as the ball cannons off the underside of the bar, the well-pummeled sphere still retaining enough momentum despite that heavy contact to shoot back up high into the net before bouncing back to stillness, a spent ace, an unruly Mustang finally corralled. The Emirates exhales a collective and involuntary four. Arsenal create a raft of other chances before, in the 14th minute, the Sunderland defence fails to deal with a, fall, with a corner kick. Diaby kicks a heel out behind him at Adibayo's cross, and Senderos, falling back on himself, plants a reaction shot into the turf that somehow passes through the congested six-yard box, looping beyond Craig Gordon and into the net. Arsenal soon find the net again. Adibayo plays Cleb into space on the right flank. Alex's early ball evades Flamini, but Diaby is on hand to stroke home again. Once more, the lanky midfielder's effort is ruled out, for offside this time. Oh, you Tottenham in disguise! Sing the cock-a-hoop Emirates majority. It turns out that they are, but not, as we had hoped, the Spurs who could allow themselves to go 4-1 down to Aston Villa on Monday, but instead the team who fought back that night to level the scores. The hugely influential Kelwin Jones makes a nuisance of himself in the Arsenal box, out-muscling an out-of-position cliché, only to see his shot parried by Manuel Almunia in the Arsenal goal. But Ross Wallace reacts brilliantly to the rebound, chesting the ball into space to wrong-foot Torre and slotting the ball home past the still-recovering keeper. Sunderland's tail has twitched. The half-time interval seems to have reinvigorated the away side still far further, Although Arsenal start the new half purposefully, the second period barely begun, the Black Cats find plenty of space on their left flank to deliver a tempting ball into the box. Once again, Clichy finds himself pulled inside and up against Jones. No contest. The scores are levelled at 2-2 as the Sunderland striker heads home powerfully despite Almunia planting a good hand on the, re- the goal-bound ball. Oh, you Tottenham in disguise! Sing those canny Mackhams. Almost imperceptibly, the lunchtime breeze drops a notch or two. It's starting to feel like Wearside in October now. Suddenly, Sunderland look dangerous every time they advance, and Arsenal's assertive passing game begins to go awry. The home team digs in, though. Torre sees an explosive strike from 30 yards, worthy of Pelé, rattle the goal frame with all the righteous force of a wrongly imprisoned man. Eboué comes on for the strangely subdued Sanyol, Walcott for Diaby. Kleb shimmies and faints his way to the byline, then pulls back an inch-perfect pass, inviting Walcott to slam the ball home. The youngster's over-keen, though, and misses the ball completely, ending up in a corkscrewed heap on the floor. 
Arsenal still nearly score from the move. The ball patiently worked to Van Persie in the D, only for the Dutchman to shoot well wide. You feel Arsenal are bound to score, but they've frustrated like this so many times before that such confidence is beginning to seem fanciful. Until, with about ten minutes left to play, Ebue plays a ball into the box that seems to be behind the run of Walcott. Undeterred, the youngster, who has for once made a genuine impact coming off the bench, flicks it into space on his right and spins off his marker. He plays an incisive first-time pass too close to Van Persie, but RVP's on fire today, and his first touch with his left is perfect. There's barely a break of stride before his next, a dismissive flick of the same foot, steers the ball by way of Gordon's flailing hand into the bottom corner. There's still enough life left in the Sunderland beast for ex-Arsenal trainee Anthony Stokes to force Almunia to tip a dipping drive over the bar. The gunner's keeper has to come out bravely to half-thwart Jones before the striker places his team's last effort wide of the far post. McShane does his best to write our hero, Clareb, out of the next few chapters of The Road to Moscow, earning himself a straight red card in the process. He goes through with both feet, studs up on the prone Alex, catching him a nasty clout on the Belarusian bollocks. Just like your manager, just like your manager, the emirs of the Emirates serenade their northern guests. But Alex is, as has been previously noted, made of steel, so he's still full of running, easily shaking off the ghouly gouging, looking brave and strong and on his metal, made of metal. Bison, prairies, McShane, high noon, bad tackles, wedding tackle. Do not forsake me, oh my darling. There's got to be a Gary Cooper joke in there somewhere. The Arsenal players keep the huddle brief, relieved, no doubt, to have stretched their winning sequence to ten games. The crowd chants, Theo, 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 as the team leaves the field. They may have made hard work of it, but the young matadors have seen off the beast. Another two-week ceasefire looms, back to England and the 80s, then Estonia, then a dry run to Moscow, ahead of the final there in May. Friday, October the 12th, 2007, 1986. Sunday, 22nd of June, 1986, Argentina 2, England 1. As I write, this game bisects my life. I was 21 years old when it was played, and that was 21 years ago. I watch it with Ziggy Woodbloom. We've sat through all the other England games at this World Cup and seen the team progress this far, so why stop now? Upon payment of a small fee, I'm ushered through the hall and into the living room. Mrs Woodbloom, no relation, has laid on a lavish kosher spread from which I'm encouraged to borrow as much as I like. Ziggy has really entered into the spirit of things, having daubed three lions in eminently delible ink onto the breast of his homemade Israeli national team replica shirt. Ever fearful of wasting good ink, his attempts to embellish the design prove unsuccessful. He's unable to persuade either a hastily scrawled lamb or calf to lie down with the three lions. Ethnic and religious groupings are so easy to poke fun at, aren't they? You wouldn't think that belonging to them could prove so hard. 
I took England's exit from the Mexico World Cup in 1986 surprisingly badly, considering I'd enjoyed watching the national team squirm for much of the tournament leading up to their quarter-final defeat. I can't imagine how awful any true patriot must have felt to see the team eliminated as controversially as they were. That said, you'd have to be a fan of the lunatic, zany, Union Jack top, hat and tails wearing sort not to have enjoyed a good laugh watching the team's woeful group stage games. Perhaps it was just me. After all, my footballing life had been forged in that crucible of mediocrity the 1970s. The first World Cup to have been hosted by the Mexicans at the outset of that decade was, to me, little more than a solitary colour holiday snap from some brief sojourn in a warm and sunny clime in the otherwise dank and monochrome photo album that was domestic football. The highlights shows would occasionally be illuminated by footage of a Revelino free kick or Pele dummying both keeper and ball in order to vindicate the progressive views of pundits like Brian Clough and Malcolm Allison. That was the extent of the colour and happiness, apart from Charlie George, another gold-clad, sun-drenched Pied Piper stretched out Christ-like on the, t- on the Wembley turf. After Charlie, though, there was nothing but ignominy. West Germany and Leeds united in 1972, Poland in 1973. Then Scotland, their three group stage games at the 1974 World Cup, a 270-minute long tartan rebuke for English failure to qualify. I'd been well hardened in what it meant to be English, you see, by 1978, let alone 1986. I'm patriotic in my own way, but I don't need a zany Union Jack top hat and tails outfit or replica shirt to demonstrate my allegiance. Being English is a bizarre enough affliction without the need to draw attention to it. You bore it then, just as you bear it now, with the minimum of fuss. Being English means that you hate bands as soon as any reasonable number of other people start to like them. It means that you'll go on to love all the things that you used to hate when the Conservative Party stood for them. When it wasn't trying to discard or destroy the very same things, that is. Once the, once the Labour Party finally gets in. Back then, being English meant that the Queen was dead and it was lonely on a limb. In Liverpool, Leeds or Birmingham, Dublin, Dundee, Humberside, it made no odds. Whatever it was they said that you were, that was what you were not. As it would go on to be 20 years hence for the Arctic Monkeys, just as it had been 20 years earlier for Albert Finney and Arthur Seaton. Them was rotten days when things were rotten. And being English meant being Ray Wilkins, throwing the ball away, getting a second yellow card in the first game of the 1986 World Cup and getting yourself sent off, only for the ten men left on the field to hang on grimly for a draw. Shame and bravery, as is so often the case with England, were inextricably intertwined. I think Englishness is very different from most other national identities. Maybe that's because we're surrounded by those other distinct nationalisms, ones that we English have spent so much of our history trying to mould or subdue, rule or form some mutually disadvantageous union with. We've expended so much effort on imposing our own will on this extended British family of ours that the very notion of an English nation has withered precisely as Wales, Ireland and Scotland have regained their autonomy and strength of purpose. A formerly overbearing parent-in-law, we're now invalided and at the whim of our delicately usurping carers and their scheming partners. 
to a far greater extent than our neighbours in the British Isles. We English can take or, le take or leave our being English in a way they cannot relinquish their being Scottish, Welsh or Irish. Even our English flag, shorn of the rich triangulations of the British Union, seems perfunctory and an act of making do. Anyone can stick it out of the window of any car or any dwelling and become a subject of its drab sovereignty, made bland by its stark indifference. Those white quarters, childishly apportioned by some bloodied finger, are as much a curse as ever they are a comfort. Be honest, you'd burn it yourself as willingly as its enemies would sometimes. Perhaps that's because we've been made aware so often of the fundamental contradictions at the heart of our patriotism, the feeling that those for whom being English means the most are, by and large, those the rest of England most despises. You'll see it tomorrow when the teams stand in line at Wembley and in the Stade de France. You'll want to sing along with the French anthem, envy the global call to arms and the spirit of their Marseillaise. Then you'll realise that all our anthem gives us is the chance to boo the other, the opportunity to jeer the French and barrack the Estonians. I can just as easily revel in England's misery as I can rail at the infamy of those who would dare abuse or scorn her. I hate her, but that is my prerogative, and woe betide those who take her name in vain. And now, four days after I buy The Queen Is Dead, comes this game. Perhaps more than any other I have watched, it helps define me, or rather it helps confuse me, or it defines the nature of my confusion. We often talk about days that shake or transform the world. I think life and history are less dramatic than that. No matter how extravagant the upheaval, things don't really change that much. The fear of nuclear extinction becomes the threat of AIDS, which with time shifts shape to become BSE or CJD. What was the communist call is now jihad, and so on. My generation was instilled, as others have been before, with a belief in the notion of progress. We will arrive at something that is better than what went before. Like all myths, it's seductive and so nearly true. Things will be better, of course they will but they will also in many ways be worse, and many alleged improvements in our lives will be hard, if not imp impossible, to call as such. So when you're looking at your own life, making your unique personal ready reckoning, conjunctions like this can seem significant. The nation itself seems to be sketched out, its contours mapped in those four days, hemmed in like a ball between arches. Is there such a thing as fair play? The English do, or perhaps more honestly used to, pride themselves upon preserving the essence of that ideal without necessarily feeling the need to be constrained by its strictures. It becomes the moot point, the kernel of this June Sunday when Maradona punches the ball beyond Shilton in the England goal. After the event, when we're all returned to the tyranny of the replay, acts of war will be task-forced over by either side to justify or denounce what is either an opportunist's or a scoundrel's goal. But somewhere in the vast and sweltering crowd that day there is fairness, if not fair play. A fellow Londoner is looking down from the gods. Like me, he's not wearing a replica shirt. He's no saint, no St George, just appraises with an honest pair of eyes. He's seen the hand of God, spotted it a mile off for the Weasley scam it was. He too feels revulsed and cheated. 
But then the passions cool, the game resumes, and something mystical and borderless occurs. One man, a sinner and a saint combined, blesses this game with his skill and with his will. "'Yah, you have to say that's magnificent!' cries Barry Davis from the commentary box at the end of Diego Maradona's Roadrunner run. He's just meep-meeped his way around, beyond and through a statue park of Englishmen, and is now leaping up and fisting the air with that hand of his, or God's. You have to say that is magnificent. And it was, and is. And so is that voice. The voice you wish could speak for all of England. Because a part of you is glad that you've been beaten. But you still feel cut in two. Tuesday, October 16th, 2007, 1945. December 1945, Arsenal 3, Dynamo Moscow 4. You draw deeply from your victory, feel the smoke expand your lungs as it goes about its lethal but invigorating work. Now you rub your mittened hand, hands against the wintry chill, exhale and watch your breath dissolve into the general fug. See it thicken and expand to fill the ground. You're here, at the lane, to write about the dynamo in the arsenal for the Tribune. Or at least that was the idea. You were going to write about the game, but instead you're stood here shivering and sniffling and staring at low cloud. You take another puff of victory. It draws a rattle from you as stirring as that of any world above their head by a young enthusiast. You peer out and vaguely sense there's still a pitch behind the secretive curtain of fog. You're here, at the lane, to watch the Arsenal play at home, and somewhere a clock must be striking thirteen. You're here to watch the Dynamo play the Arsenal at the lane, but this isn't really the Arsenal. How could a team containing Matthews, Mortensen and Rook be called an Arsenal team? That is what the Soviets will claim. And you know, if no one else does, that this is not a dynamo team, but a Soviet team. You don't want to admit it, don't want to be their stooge or help do Pravda's work for them, but deep down you acknowledge that the men from Moscow are correct. How could it be otherwise? This is Dzerzhinsky's team. So this will not be Dynamo v Arsenal. This is England v the USSR. This is not football, this is propaganda. This will not be sport. It will be war, minus the shooting. And you are here at the lane, recording the particulars, tugging on a victory smoke and grimacing a little with every waft of the whiff of the flat-capped crowd around you. They are mainly here to see these sporting heroes from the realm of Uncle Joe. Uncle Joe. There's nothing avuncular about the reign of the Soviet Tsar. You've tried to tell them, but they will not listen. But you'll keep going, trying to find the words to nail this slippery, wriggling and inconvenient truth to the cathedral door. After the match, you'll peel away from the dispersing crowd, head back to Islington and tap away at those sturdy iron keys, alone once more with that interrogating consciousness. The last man in Europe. You peer through the fog at where the team should be, you can see the ghostly frames of the two Soviet linesmen, their boots hugging the chalk of the same right-hand touchline in a Soviet perversion of the norm. The game kicks off, and straight away the Russians score. Bobrov suggests a, a flat-capped cockney in the crowd. 
then Rook scores, then another two for Mortensen before the Russians pull one back. There's a scuffle between the players. White shirt arm strikes out through Fug. Half-time arrives, a break in the hostilities. This war without the weapons pauses for a brisk cup of tea. The fog grows ever thicker. The restart is delayed. Low, heavy cloud obscures the machinations in the tunnel. A rumour starts to work its way around the ground. The Soviet officials will call off the game if their team has not drawn level before the end. Finally, into the murky gloom, the 22 emerge. Red and white shirts flash out of the fog like plain tails plunging through low cloud. The Russians score. They score again. The final whistle blows. The air is foul. You'll trudge back down the Seven Sisters, past beastly charred facades. Ill and filled with ill will, you'll shuffle up the stairs. Another hooping, rattling cough as you unwind your tight-pooled, tash-tickling scarf. You'll roll and shift and clunk and jab until gradually the black words seep and thaw the sheet of snow before you. Your spirit slowly warms. Another victory. You let it dangle, downward pointing, held steady by a tight-lipped smile. Tap, 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 clunk, tap, 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 as you type your weekly Tribune piece, As I Please, by George Orwell. The Sporting Spirit. <laughs>